this kind of, kind of gloomy Sunday in the fall, but I have to admit, um, I like days like this because they're kind of quiet. They're restful. They almost invite nap-taking after church, though I shouldn't project my own desires on you all. Uh, but I was thinking about that in part because I was asked by Dick, you know, we've been doing the series together of thinking about work. And so we're following up with two weeks on Sabbath, which seems the appropriate thing, right? Work and think about how do we do our work and then think about how we do our rest. And then I thought, um, I'm a little incredulous that I have to speak on the Sabbath. Um, I'm, especially before my children, who've really interrupted my patterns, um, slightly bit of a workaholic who sort of enjoys the addiction, right? Because I actually enjoy what I do and I find pleasure in it. And um, sadly, there's enough of it to keep feeding that kind of addiction. And uh, this, the, the command to Sabbath is the only command that we regularly break with great joy and pride and actually announce how frequently we break it, right? So um, how are you doing? I'm working so hard right now. I'm so busy, right? These are the natural ways we begin to speak to one another. And you can't imagine doing that so overtly with any of the other Ten Commandments, right? Oh, I was engaging in idolatry all day yesterday. It was just exhausting. Or, right, I was using the Lord's name in vain nearly every 35 minutes. Or, you know, I was stealing things right and left. I just couldn't stop myself. But with work, we actually do that. And actually, we praise people who do that. And we honor them, and we promote them, and we watch television shows about them, right? It, um, and so it's a sobering thing to speak on work, so let's turn to the Lord in prayer um, to guide me and to guide us to hear his voice rightly. Uh, Lord, you're good. And while many people see the Ten Commandments as burdensome, um, we know you're good. You're loving. You created humanity to flourish. And so you gave us um, these principles to help us flourish in you so that we would know you serve the world, that we'd be transformed by you and engage in mission in the world. Um, so we pray, help us listen for your voice. Help us to be responsive to your spirit. And may Jesus Christ and his glory be our chief concern. Amen. Um, as I've thought about the Sabbath over the years, and it's been helpful to have children because they do put a rather jarring stop on the activities of your life, especially when they're younger and would like to be with you, those years, I suspect, are quickly passing for my family. Um, I've thought a lot about how they're embedded in the context of the Ten Commandments because it's easy to look at Sabbath commands um, in isolation, and they certainly occur in isolation at times, but they're embedded in the Ten Commandments because I think they're set in the, a particular context, right? And in Exodus chapter 20... They're set in the context of redemption, the escape from Egypt, and God's desire to establish a covenant relationship for his people, right? So it's this um, foretaste of the salvation that he offers us. So it begins, and the Lord God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery, right? And so the entire point of the Ten Commandments is to remind us that as part of God's salvation of us, as part of his desire to make us into a new people, as part of his love for us, he gives us these commands. And the Sabbath is interesting because it's the pivot point 
of the Ten Commandments. The first three focus on the nature of our relationship with God, and the final six focus on our nature, the nature of our relationships with other, with others. And the celebration of the Sabbath grows from this structure provided by the other nine commandments. So quickly, since we want to focus on the Sabbath, the first three commands really deal with how do you relate to God, right? They're profoundly relational in the end. The first three commands focused on the supremacy of God in particular. Um, The first command challenges our, our loyalty, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It asserts that the Lord himself is supreme and only God is supreme. There's no other God before him, around him. So to be before him isn't an issue of like priority, that he's just the most important, as an issue of reality. There is no other God to give our worship to. There is nobody worthy of our praise, our adoration, our submission, and our joy. The difficulty, of course, is that it's so easy to find other gods to worship. What's your God? It's what you love. And the way we know what we love is through the things that we do. Many of us can say we love the Lord, but if I were to look at the way that your um, calendar plays out, Um, on your various smartphones, if I look at the compulsive behaviors that we choose to engage in, if I look at the way I shape and mold my life around certain things, I will know what you love, right? The way we know what each other loves is that we don't ask what we love, we ask what do you do and you will show me what you love. The second command challenges our desire to limit God. If God is the only God, then we cannot limit him. And that's why um, in verses 4 through 6, you have the issue of idolatry, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Because the problem with idolatry is that it distorts our understanding of a God. An idol limits our understanding of God by shaping our understanding and in fact, suggesting that God is dependent on us rather than that we're dependent on God, right? Because if you carve an, if you carve an idol for yourself in that time period, um, the shape of the idol suggests to you something about the shape of your God. So that if you, in, for example, that time made a golden calf for yourself, then it does a couple things. One, it suggests that your God is both strong and powerful, which is what the image of an ox would communicate in that time. So that's correct. But our God isn't dependent on us to lead him to appropriate pasture. Our God is not a beast of burden that we put our yoke on to accomplish our purposes in harvest um, and in, in work around the house or around the farm, right? The problem with idols is that it reduces God from somebody that we worship who is beyond us to something that we can control, Even the great fertility idols in the end suggest that we can harness the power of sexuality and life for our own purposes um, because we are in control. Because, in fact, we made it with our own hands, and that's the critique of idolatry in Isaiah. How can you worship this thing that you carved, that you gilded, that you set up? It's clear you're in charge. You take the leftover pieces of your God that you didn't need for the idol, and you burn it, or you use it in some other product. What kind of God is that? God cannot be limited by, our, um, by what we create, by what we shape. 
The third command, of course, follows. If God is the only God and therefore worthy to be worshipped and you should not limit him, then the third command challenges our desire to control God. It forbids us from exploiting God's name to manipulate others or to manipulate God, right? So it says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. To misuse the name of the Lord focuses on curses, not cursing, although that is not good as well, but on curses, on using the Lord's name as a talisman either to get his attention, if I just say his name frequently enough, he will pay attention, um, which is why often, I, I read a lot of fantasy novels, but right, or, but if you read um, Harry Potter, like, don't mention the name of Lord Voldemort, because he may hear you, and that attracts his attention, right? Names have some sort of power. And so the thought is, if I keep using the Lord's name, I will get his attention so that he will do what I ask him to do, or I will use it against you by using him to curse you and asking him to curse you. And the Lord says, don't invoke me that way. I am the only Lord. You can't limit me, nor can you control me. I will not do what you tell me to do, nor will I curse the people you ask me to curse. I am the Lord God. And with this large, comprehensive picture of who God is, right, greater than who we are, um, unable to be limited by us and unable to be controlled by us, he then we then come to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your manservant nor maidservant, nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's interesting to me that um, the fourth commandment says this, Remember the Sabbath and stop working. Cease from work one day out of seven. And the Sabbath commandment is grounded in our creation, right? Um, in verse 10 it says, On the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Um, reminding us, as well as in verse 11, On six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. That... Um, one day out of seven, we're to stop laboring. One day out of seven, we offer to the Lord. It's holy. It defines life not by what we do, but by who God is and who we are in God. And the challenge, of course, for us, at least if you're like me, but frankly, I think if you are an American at any level culturally, um, to cease working so deeply threatens our producti productivity that it frightens us. How could I possibly get done everything that I need to get done? If I don't work that extra day, the consequences at work would be terrible. What could I possibly stop doing because everything I do seems to be incredibly essential? And if it threatens our productivity, that's precisely what the Sabbath is designed to do. Because, in fact, in our culture, we're often defined by our productivity, aren't we? We're defined by our grades when we're younger, by our salary or job status when we're older, and... Um, by our children's successes when we're older still, because at least if we can no longer be physically productive, all of the effort and investment we made is now beginning to pay off. And in fact, right, we're entering into a season partially because of increased lifespan and increased health where it's now becoming more and more essential for people who are retired to demonstrate that they're still being productive by doing something. Right? At no point in my life have I ever heard, except for infants, 
they rest so well, right, as considered um, a positive. Now, it's true with an infant if they say, they're sleeping through the night. We all give praise to the Lord. But once you hit about five or six, um, our compliments, our blessings tend to turn toward productivity. What do you accomplish? And for those of us in the congregation who've ever suffered through chronic illness, or periods of unemployment or underemployment, you know exactly how devastating that can be because what people struggle with is not just the lack of income, but it's the, um, it's the body blow to identity because we can no longer be productive. In fact, that's why we answer the question, how are you so frequently with how we are working and very little about how we are being how are you? I'm great. It's so busy at work right now, is the typical way we respond, um, which tells you a lot about where work and productivity plays into our sense of identity. But God says, your patterns of work and rest should be modeled after me, that to grow in godliness, grow to be more like God in his holiness and his beauty, his love and his majesty, he says, I chose to stop one day out of seven, to cease work and to rejoice and delight. Do this so that you are more like me. And you'll notice how he embeds this um, in verses 8 through 11. It's a creational thing, true for all humanity. Um, and so it applies to all people, rich and poor, citizen and immigrant, male and female, slave and free, even the animals, he says, as part of the great rhythms of what it means to be um, created beings should get a rest one day out of seven. I suspect also because he was well aware, even if we were asked to cease, if we could find a way to make the animals work while we didn't, we would do it. And therefore, we'd be working ourselves, right? He's, he just says, I created the world and I just want you to pause, one day out of seven. That, and the Lord offers both grace and justice here, doesn't he? He says, I'm giving you this gift of one day out of seven to rest, but not just those of you who are rich enough to stop working one day out of seven with no consequences. Give your servants a day off as well. Not just the men get a day off, because that's often then how it works in many cultures, where the men decide they're going to stop working, but the women still have to continue producing. Male and female. Male servants and female servants, children and youth, and not just the slaves or immigrants that you bring in, but everybody stop working right now. And if it's difficult to imagine or if we struggle with, well, how would we get everything done and so much depends on me in doing it, Sabbath essentially is demanding that we ground our beliefs in God as defined by those first three commandments. He's all-powerful. There's nothing like him. You can't control him, nor can you limit him, and that you embed those in actual time, space, and behavior. It's interesting that the Sabbath commands the first command with a, um, that's positive, right? There are three negatives. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but do this. The way you can demonstrate that you believe God is almighty and cannot be limited and cannot be controlled is to live and press into the Sabbath. Because at least in our culture now, I think we worship time more than almost anything else. It's so important that we count it, we invest it, we save it, we manage it. Sometimes we even lose it, right? It's a commodity that we now have. It's just, we use the same terms about time as we do about money. 
And the Sabbath is one day out of seven given to the Lord. And it really challenges what is really God in our life? What do you love? Is he really God? Or is it the calendar and schedule that you must keep? Do you really have too much to do? Or is God so limited that he could not accomplish it if you were to obey his commands? The Sabbath reminds me if I do what God has called me to do, including observing the Sabbath, he will provide enough time to do it. And if there's too much to do, perhaps I've misheard God's call. Perhaps he could actually do it without us because he cannot be limited by us and our capacities. Am I really in control? Does the fate of the world, or at least my narrow little experience of the world, depend so much on me? Or is it God? Because in Sabbath, I'm forced to confront my limitations. My body has limited strength and ability. My soul has limited ability to function without rest. I cannot accomplish it all. I do not succeed merely because of my effort. Sabbath requires me to trust in the grace of God. And if you're like me at all and you have an overwhelming sense of responsibility and um, shaky boundaries, the Sabbath is good news because it requires me to confront the fact that my responsibilities may be largely self-imposed and the lack of boundaries isn't particularly kindliness or generosity of heart, but actually idolatry of my own abilities. Sabbath confronts me to confront my schedule and to ask, do I believe that God is God? And Sabbath reminds me, right, as we think about grace and our own limitations, that it is embedded in the great act of Exodus, this great act of salvation. Um, That's why the book of Hebrews sees Sabbath as a foretaste of Christ's eventual salvation, right? As part of my salvation of you. I need you to confront your limitations, your overwhelming sense that you can make it right, and to live in my grace. From the, there, the Sabbath command then points to the other parts of the Ten Commandments, and let me go through them quickly because the next six really focus on the nature of our relationship with others, and I think they suggest how we should celebrate the Sabbath. Many of us, if we grew up in Sabbath traditions, we're told just stop doing things, stop having fun, rest quietly, maybe pray and worship, so it's like a never-ending quiet church service, which never really explained all the people who have to work to make church happen, but right, it was just supposed to be you know, quiet. Um, I have friends who grew up in um, Dutch Reformed traditions where they weren't allowed to play games. They were just a... I, I'm not sure what they were supposed to do. They, and they never seemed to be sure either because they spend most of their time telling me how they tried to get around their parents' strict Sabbath observances. So let's look at what the next commands are to suggest how we could celebrate Sabbath in a way consistent with what the Lord is talking about. You'll notice commands 5, 6, and 7 focused on parents, murder, and adultery, Right? The perfect soap opera of commandments. Um, Murder, um, parents, and adultery. And the challenge here I want to suggest in verses 12 through 14 is that if you stop murder, you stop adultery, and you honor your parents, what you're essentially doing is you're preserving the social fabric of the um, covenant community, right? Because those are the elements through which uh, you preserve Uh, life, right? These three commandments set the conditions for the creation of community by focus on the giving of life, the taking of life, and the nurturing of life, right? Don't mess with those. I want to suggest that then if the next three commands say don't take life, celebrate 
the creation of life and protect the things that allow for the nurturing of life, that Sabbath is a time to celebrate life and strengthen relationships. Cease from work, but celebrate life. Engage in acts of creativity, music, art, cooking for those of us who don't have to do it every day. <coughs> um, do activities, sports, gardening, or exercise, or doing good for others, right? Do the things that nurture social networks that allow you to celebrate relationships and that are life-giving. Doesn't that sound much better than just stop doing things, right? God says, how do I want you to live? Don't take life, don't interfere, right? But instead, nurture it, bring, um, bring good things. I think this is in part why Jesus thought it was totally consistent to heal on the Sabbath. He wasn't just flouting. Um, the rules that they had at the time, or showing how narrow they were, part of what he was saying is the Sabbath was given to us to delight. And the next three commands say celebrate life and nurture relationships. And what could do that better than healing people and restoring them into community? In your Sabbath, <coughs> spend time with friends. Invite them over for simple meals. Spend time enjoying your family, doing the things that your family enjoys. Last week um, after church, um, my kids wanted to go to the Met, um, Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art. I gave each one of them a sketchbook and a little pencil, and we went to um, the Roman Gallery, then we went over to the, um, the um, Americas Gallery, and we just spent about two hours sketching and drawing, and for them, um, they're not, none of us are good at it, all of us Delight in the chance to use our God-given abilities and gifts to look, to savor, and to delight, and to spend time with one another. It was a great way to spend a Sabbath. Commandments 8, 9, and 10 focus on stealing things and stealing reputations and what causes these acts, right? Covetousness. Um, you, sh uh, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not cover your neighbor's house or their wife or their manservant or manservant, right? Everything. Um, the challenge, then, I want to suggest is Sabbath says celebrate relationship and then pursue covenant contentment. Sabbath is a time to cease acquiring, to cease slandering, and to cease coveting. Or, to put it more positively, right, Sabbath should be a time to give. Offering here at worship, um, worship of God through song and word and prayer, and offering ourselves to one another. Um, I think that's why simple meals with one another and to the wider community might be a totally consistent Sabbath practice. The challenge for many of us when we think about inviting people over is that the issues of covetousness begin to come up in odd ways. If the meal isn't nice enough, or my home isn't clean enough, or things aren't organized enough, and therefore we talk ourselves out of it, and in the end, while we say, well, we want to be great hosts, the issue is, I really wish I could be more like a family that could put on this kind of meal with no effort. And far better, right, if you want to celebrate community and draw relationship is to say, we will be content with what we can offer in ways that do not create work but bring joy. Right? It may be the um, giant bowl of um, chili put in a uh, crock pot hours before that takes um, minimal work if you're a kind of person who enjoys cooking. It could be we're offering a simple gift of sandwiches and chips today at our lunch. 
and that we embrace contentment. This is what we're capable of doing without stress and with joy. And we're inviting the people who come over to enjoy contentment as well. They don't need delightful food. They need people who are delighting in them and in the Lord together, right? If we choose to confront covetousness, some of the activities that we do are so much easier, more delightful, and more relaxing. Um, it could be, if we are to avoid stealing people's reputation, that we find time to encourage one another with truthful words about who they are and what they're about. One of the things um, I do as uh, the assistant to InterVarsity's president, he said, I want to be more high touch. And so um, I had uh, our entire leadership team sign um, these little cards, right, all six or seven of us, and I've started asking various vice presidents and leaders in university, is there, who on your team would you like us to say something, um, to bless today? Tell me one thing that they've done recently where you, you would like us to pay attention to. And so I've gotten 20 or 30 of these in the last four or five days. And so I'll just be writing cards um, during one of my breaks in the next couple days. You know, Dear John, um, I was talking with your supervisor the other day, and they just were so impressed by the servant-like way which you engaged uh, the fall conference. They just said every time they turned, they saw you doing something to serve somebody, whether it was a fellow coworker or um, a student. Thank you, right, for being a servant of Christ. Pop those in the mail. Um, what would it take? You don't even have to write notes, though everybody likes a card, right? A short email every Sabbath to say of somebody meaningful in your past, of somebody currently valuable uh, because of their, who they are to you right now, right? of somebody that you'd like to delight in. That, in fact, may be the best redemptive use of Facebook in the world. Given the dreck that's often on Facebook, imagine if we just said one day out of seven, I will turn it into an opportunity to bless somebody else. I'm going to pop on their timeline and just say, 20 years ago, you were kind to me in elementary school or college or, you know, depending on where you put yourself in that timeline. Um, thank you so much. Um, you helped me get through what was otherwise a hard year by just saying hello and smiling. Imagine what that could be like as Sabbath. I suspect it would not feel like work for us who do it and would bless the people who receive it. Commandments 8, 9, and 10 focus on avoiding sealing things, stealing reputations, and covetousness. In part, right, if we decide not to work, we would live more simply, we would reflect and be more thankful. Um, for most of us, we cannot stop doing everything that we're doing on Sabbath. Now, if you live in New York City, there are a lot of ways that, particularly with so many Orthodox Jewish um, friends in the city, they've arranged things to make things easier to stop working. But particularly if you have younger children, I don't know about you, I love my children, I adore them, and being with them still feels a little bit like work. In fact, sometimes I think, I need to go to work now just to get a little bit of break from the children. Um, but there may be ways to gift each other with Sabbath. I know married couples who on a day which they've decided often a Saturday, Sunday, it's Sabbath day today. Uh, for um, husbands who are, um, if they have a wife who stays at home, have told their wives, you take three or four hours today. I will, um, let me be with the children. That will be my delight. I don't get to do this. This is my pleasure. What would, it, what would bring pleasure to you today? Do you need a nap? Would you, would you like just some time to journal, reflect? Do you need to do some self-care today? Like just go out, walk in the woods, um, have a quiet cup of coffee in a coffee shop 
where nobody will bother you? Would you just like to find a bathroom where nobody will knock on the door while you're inside? Right? I mean, something small. What could we do to make it work for you? Um, and then this, uh, the wife will come back a couple hours later. Go. You go take some time to be with the Lord, to do the things that you enjoy, to rest and refill. But there, there are ways. There may be ways of families sharing with one another. Tell you what, I would love a Sabbath with my spouse this week. Let me take your children this week from you so that you and your spouse get a whole day free. And then next week, you take my children. And together as a larger family of faith, we'll give each other space to do it. There are ways of accommodating. For those, I would love to think of ways uh, churches could think about helping single parents um, relieve some of the burden for just a day, right? Let me watch your child today. Let me take them out and do something fun. And I know there's tons of things you might need to do at home. Will you promise me at least use two or three hours to do something that just brings you delight, that brings you a little rest? that relieves your soul a little bit, right? What are ways that we could enable and help one another begin to live out not just the Sabbath commands, but actually embrace the whole of the Ten Commandments as we do so? Sabbath is part of pursuing godliness. Uh, God actually gives us the example of resting, of celebrating life, of strengthening relationships, of giving and encouraging. It actually will shape our character so we begin to live out the fruits of the Spirit in a new way. So... um, Slowly, reluctantly, with some diffidence and difficulty, I've been trying to do more with Sabbath, in part having younger children who want to spend time with me when I'm not traveling or at work has really helped me with that. Um, But even when I was a college student, I found from Friday late afternoon when my last class was over through my uh, InterVarsity Chapters worship and um, learning time Friday night through Saturday morning and afternoon, I often decided as a college student to take a Sabbath. I'd read novels that I would enjoy rather than doing the schoolwork I probably should have done by many people's standards. I tried to arrange Saturday night to end with a meal that I would enjoy with friends. Often it would just be pizza, right, in a dorm room. Um, At that, 24 hours gave me great joy. I won't argue it made me more productive because that's often what you read in American books about Sabbath. If you rest one day out of seven, you'll be more productive in the next six. That to me seems so fundamentally twisted to make the day of rest about greater productivity that I won't make that argument. I was more joyful in college. I was um, more rested in college. I've been more able uh, to be who God wanted me to be. And I'm finding that to be true today, and I hope it will be true for us. We work as before the Lord, and then we rest as God's gift from the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, help us to see your commandments as invitations from you uh, to trust you more deeply, to relate to the world um, more graciously in the ways that you intend. And then for all of us who I suspect, I I expect I go to everybody here and say, how are you? And they'd say, really tired right now. Uh, May we embrace your gift of rest. You are a good God. Amen.